Hello, everyone, and welcome to the April 23rd edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Skarin, Mnookin, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. Attorneys for injured workers continue to attempt to make a federal racketeering case out of workers' compensation claims administration, and so far they have failed in the Sixth and Ninth Circuits. Yet they are unrelenting despite their lack of success. Now they have just suffered another legal setback in the Sixth Circuit. The latest case involves Mark Maruza, who suffered a serious work-related accident in 2011. He filed a civil action claiming that the defendant, Accident Fund Insurance Company, neglected to pay their share of Maruza's medical bills, which resulted in Medicare paying for a portion of his bills. Accident Fund likewise allegedly refused to pay Nancy Gukwa, Maruza's long-term live-in girlfriend, for the attendant care she provided. Maruza and Gukwa alleged in their federal court case that Accident Fund and others were in violation of the Racketeering Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, also known as RICO, in fraudulently denying his claim. They also claimed double damages under the Medicare Secondary Payer Act for the funds they seek on behalf of Medicare. The district court dismissed each claim for failure to state a cause of action and the United States Court of Appeals affirmed the dismissal in the partially published case of Gukwa v. Lawley. The district court found that his personal injuries does not qualify as an injury to business or property, those words, as contemplated by the RICO statute, and thus the RICO claim was properly dismissed. It followed the case authority of Jackson v. Sedgwick Claims Management Services, Inc., an unbanked decision that said racketeering activity leading to a loss or diminution of benefits that the plaintiff expects to receive under a workers' compensation scheme does not constitute an injury to business or property under RICO. The district court also dismissed Maruza's claim under the Medicare Secondary Payer Act because he had not alleged financial harm. The Medicare Secondary Payer Act is not a key Tom statute. Therefore, the financial injury suffered by the government does not confer standing upon other parties. Private plaintiffs must suffer their own individual harm. And now our crime report. Anthony Stephen Bianchi, MD, currently still holds a California license as a physician and has an office in Fresno, California. He now claims to practice occupational medicine in a clinic evaluating and treating workers' compensation cases. However, the disciplinary records of the Medical Board of California provide great detail on his tawdry history with female patients. Disciplinary charges were first filed against Bianchi by the Medical Board of California in 2012, alleging he engaged in sexual misconduct with female patients as a gynecologist dating back to 2009. In 2013, Dr. Bianchi and his attorney signed a stipulated settlement and disciplinary order 
and he admitted that the medical board could make a prima facie case against him based upon the complaint. He was placed on probation, which included that he undergo a complete psychiatric evaluation and turn to psychotherapy and complete a professional boundaries program. He was placed on probation for a period of five years from the date of the disciplinary order, and his probation would end this coming December. A follow-up disciplinary action was filed by the medical board in May 2015. This alleged patient abuse that occurred also in 2009, but was brought to the attention of the board in 2013 after the victim heard about the prior discipline. Bianchi agreed not to contest the second charges, and he held on to his medical license. Probation did not require him to notify any subsequent patients of his probationary status, despite the fact he was required to notify his malpractice carrier and his employer. The Associated Press article cited his case when it argued that when the doctors are disciplined, the punishment often consists of a short suspension paired with mandatory therapy that treats sexually abusive behavior as a symptom of an illness or addiction. The Associated Press goes on to say that after decades of complaints of sexual misconduct, the physician disciplinary system is too lenient on sex-abusing doctors. Another example they gave was the sentencing of Larry Nassar, a former doctor for the U.S. Olympic gymnastics program, convicted of abusing more than 150 women and girls. Has conviction put a, his conviction has put a high-profile case of physician misconduct in the spotlight. But across the country, most doctors accused of sexual misconduct avoid a medical license review entirely. A study last year found that two-thirds of doctors who were sanctioned by their employers or paid a settlement as a result of sex misconduct claims never faced board discipline. A health services researcher with the nonprofit advocacy organization Public Citizen says, there's been a failure of the medical community to take a stand against this issue. A former employee of a Southern California ambulance company was sentenced to 36 months in prison for his role in a scheme that resulted in more than $1.1 million in fraudulent claims to Medicare. 54-year-old Aaron Aaron Kaskarian of Los Angeles was also ordered to pay over $484,000 in restitution to Medicare, jointly and severally with his co-conspirators who await their sentencing. Last number, last November, he pleaded guilty to one count of conspiracy to commit health care fraud. He was employed as the Quality Improvement Coordinator for Moran Ambulance Incorporated of San Fernando. This ambulance transportation company has been operating in the greater Los Angeles area and provided non-emergency services to Medicare beneficiaries, many of whom were dialysis patients. Kirk Kasharian admitted that he conspired with other Maroon, Maroon employees to submit claims to Medicare for ambulance transportation services for individuals who did not need such services. He also admitted that he and his co-conspirators instructed Maroon emergency medical technicians to conceal the patient's true medical conditions, 
by altering paperwork and creating fraudulent reasons to justify the ambulance services. He was charged along with 55-year-old Toros Onik Yeranosian, the former owner of Maruian Ambulance, and 57-year-old Oksan Lutsiko, the former general manager of the company, and 47-year-old Maria Espinoza, a former employee of the Los Angeles Dialysis Treatment Center. Each of them pleaded guilty and are pending sentencing. The former dispatch supervisor at Moran, 37-year-old Christian Hernandez, has also pleaded guilty and awaits sentencing. The ambulance company submitted over $28 million in claims to Medicare and the defendants admitted that at least $6.6 million of those claims were false and fraudulent claims for medically unnecessary transportation services. And in regulatory news, the DWC has issued an order updating the medical treatment utilization schedule drug formulary effective May 15. The update provides for the addition and deletion of drugs for treatment of eye disorders to coordinate with the updated ACOM eye disorders guideline, which was adopted into the MTUS. There are changes to the designation of exempt, non-exempt status for drugs added for treatment of eye disorders, and the designation of special fill status for drugs added for the treatment of eye disorders. The proposal will update guideline reference symbols for ankle and foot disorders and eye disorders, and there is now a designation of an additional corticosteroid as eligible for special fill. The brand name of this corticosteroid, now designated for a four-day special fill, is Celestone, and the generic name is Bentamethasone. It is used for a number of diseases, including rheumatic disorders, such as rheumatoid arthritis, and is available as pill, by injection, and as a cream. The special fill designation allows dispensing of identified non-exempt drugs without prospective utilization review. However, the special fill drug must be prescribed at the single initial treatment visit following a workplace injury, within seven days of the date of injury, and for a supply of the drug not to exceed the limit set forth in the drug list. The updated MTUS drug list and the Administrative Director's order is posted on the DWC MTUS drug formulary webpage. Further updates to the MTUS drug list will be made on a quarterly or more frequent basis. And in medical news, science and medicine are getting very close to big and meaningful breakthroughs on diseases and maladies that were once only somewhat treatable with very expensive routines of medications. Gene therapy breakthroughs have been a big part of this, with the FDA approving promising gene therapy trials and even more exciting results coming in from around the world. But it is interesting to see information about how some of the healthcare industry thinks about all of this. In an April 10 report for biotech clients, Goldman Sachs delved into a pretty awkward subject, actually curing patients as a sustainable business model for the healthcare industry. 
analysts noted that one-shot cures for diseases are not great for business as they're bad for long-term profits. The investment bank's report titled The Genome Revolution actually asks if clients is curing patients a sustainable business model? And the answer may be no, according to follow-up received from the survey. While the potential to deliver one-shot cures is one of the most attractive aspects of gene therapy, genetically engineered cell therapy and gene editing, such treatments offer a very different outlook with regard to recurring revenue versus chronic therapies. While this proposition carries tremendous value for patients and society, it could present a challenge for genome medicine developers looking for sustained cash flow. They used an example, Gilead Sciences, which markets treatments for hepatitis C that have cure rates exceeding 90%. In 2015, the company's hepatitis C treatment sales peaked at $12.5 billion, but as more people were cured and there were fewer infected individuals to spread the disease, sales began to languish. Thus, treatments will bring in less than $4 billion this year. Gilead's rapid rise and fall of its hepatitis C franchise highlights one of the dynamics of an effective drug that permanently cures a disease. The report noted that diseases such as common cancers where the incident pool remains stable, are less risky for business. That may be a bad finding for patients. An advisory panel to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration unanimously voted in favor of approving the first cannabis-derived medicine in the country, a childhood epilepsy treatment developed by GW Pharma. The drug Epidiolex is derived from cannabinol, one of the hundreds of molecules found in the marijuana plant. And an FDA decision is expected on this drug by June 27th. The syrup contains less than 0.1% of tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC, the substance that makes people high. The FDA panel found that the drug's benefits outweighed the risks to treat patients aged two years and older with Dravet syndrome and Lennox-Gastrot syndrome. These are rare childhood onset forms of epilepsy that are among the most resistant to treatment. It is estimated that there are about 14 to 18,500 patients with LGS and 1 in 40,000 sufferers of Dravet syndrome in the United States for which there is no approved treatment. Some LGS patients have to wear helmets to avoid brain injuries from drop seizures that cause loss of muscle strength. The panel's backing of the new drug comes after the FDA staff gave a favorable review, <clears throat> citing three clinical studies that showed the drug reduced frequency of seizures in patients with the disease when added to a current therapy. Under the U.S. federal law, marijuana is considered to have no medical value. And this is the first drug that may change that position. And in other industry news, Amazon Business, which sells bulk items to business customers, has shelved its plan to sell and distribute pharmaceutical products after considering the idea last year. 
The setback illustrates the challenges of getting into the medical supply and pharmaceutical space even for a company as big as Amazon. The change in plan comes partly because Amazon has not been able to convince big hospitals to change their traditional purchasing processes. This typically involves a number of middlemen and loyal relationships and perhaps illegal incentives, as have been demonstrated in national civil and criminal litigation. Moreover, Amazon would also need to build a more sophisticated logistics network than can handle temperature-sensitive pharmaceutical products. Still, Amazon hasn't completely ruled out getting into the pharma distribution space eventually. Multiple reports have speculated that the company will someday add a direct-to-consumer prescription drug business. Amazon Business could also reconsider getting into the pharma space once it gains more scale. Meanwhile, the company continues to explore other healthcare projects through different teams across the company. Amazon has started a secret skunkworks lab dedicated to opportunities in the healthcare, including new areas such as electronic medical records and telemedicine. Amazon has dubbed this stealth team 1492, which appears to be a reference to the year Columbus first landed in the Americas. The stealth team, which is headquartered in Seattle, is focused on both hardware and software projects. Amazon has been selling medical products like uh, glucosimeters, gloves, and stethoscopes to medical clinics for several years. It now has the necessary licensing in 47 out of 50 states and the District of Columbia. But Amazon has struggled to land contracts with large hospital networks despite convening an advisory board that includes major hospital executives. These groups of hospitals have long-standing contracts with distributors like Cardinal Health and McKesson. Many hospitals also own a stake in entities called group purchasing organizations that negotiate on their behalf, leveraging their collective negotiating power. Interest in medicines which use engineered viruses to carry healthy genetic material into the cells of sick people has exploded recently as the first wave of gene-fixing drugs reached the market. That has left some drug companies scrambling for sufficient capacity at a time when the industry is also grappling with shortages of DNA-carrying viral vectors. And now General Electric, the powerhouse industrial company, is raising its bet on biotechnology with the launch of prefabricated manufacturing units for producing virus-based gene and cell therapies, novel anti-cancer treatments, and vaccines. GE, better known for making jet engines and turbines, sees an opportunity in the fast-growing field. It aims to build on its existing expertise in biotech manufacturing by delivering a factory-in-a-box service specifically for viral vector-based medicine. The U.S. conglomerate already makes off-the-shelf modular factories for other complex biological medicines, such as monoclonal antibodies. Its so-called Kubio factories are cheaper and faster to construct than traditional factories, offering GE a way to win business for its growing life sciences division. 
depending upon the factory design and the drug being made, an equivalent Kubio could reduce build costs by as much as 50%. Taiwanese manufacturer of biologics, JHL Biotech, recently upped the ante and ordered an entire high-tech pharmaceuticals factory from GE. The components for the world's largest single-use modular plant for making biopharmaceuticals recently left Europe for JHL's new site in Wuhan, the capital of China's Hubei province. GE Healthcare's Kubio includes everything from bioprocessing equipment to the building and overall project coordination. The modules at the site arrive 80 to 90% pre-equipped with the heating, ventilating, and air conditioning system, the clean room, most of the utility equipment, and all of the piping necessary to run the plant. When the 62 completed Kubio modules that make up the factory reach the destination in China, they will help JHL make affordable biologics for markets where they are otherwise prohibitively expensive. Biologics, also called biopharmaceuticals, are a new class of medicines made from strings of complex proteins. They are now leading the charge against disease and represent the fastest growing class of drugs. They range from synthetic insulin to medicines that can be used to treat cancer, rheumatoid arthritis, and other diseases. GE is also stepping up operations within the wider supply chain that is needed to deliver cell therapies like Novartis's Chimera and Gilead Sciences' Yescarta, both of which were approved in 2017 for treating certain blood cancers. Last year, GE Healthcare bought British-based Asymptote, a specialist in freezing, preserving, and transporting large volumes of living cells. Overall, GE says it expects to have a $1 billion a year gene and cell therapy business by 2025. There are now more than 700 viral vector-based therapies in clinical trials spurring demand for biologically secure bioreactors to churn out products. Since most such treatments are targeted therapies designed for small patient populations, GE is betting that drug companies will prefer its flexible, small-scale Kubio units to large traditional factories. The Travelers Companies announced its newest digital capabilities to improve the claim experience for injured employees. The additions provide increasing access to medical professionals after a workplace injury. My Travelers for Injured Employees, the company's web-based and mobile-friendly self-service tool for workers' compensation claims, offers two-way messaging between an injured employee and a Travelers Claim nurse professional. This digital tool provides access to a full claim team, including claim and medical professionals, and helps keep injured employees more engaged in the process to help accelerate their recovery. Two-way document sharing will also be added to the My Travelers for Injured Employees tool. Injured employees will be able to easily upload important materials related to their claim, including state workers' compensation forms, work status reports, mileage trackers, and medical reports. 
This new feature will make it easier and faster for injured employees to exchange information with travelers so they can move forward through the claim process more efficiently. The company also announced the addition of a telemedicine capability, enabling qualified injured employees to conduct appointments with a physician by way of a secured video connection on their computer or smartphone. By delivering clinical health care from a distance, Telemedicine may offer a cost-effective alternative to emergency room visits while also providing access to care when it is not readily available. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and of course, much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish a daily, a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Search for Workers' Compensation News on the Amazon website. Again, I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd Skarin, Manukian Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.